just tail end of our discussions this evening. But thank you to many of you who have uh, shared with us your deep insights uh, into our political and economic uh, dynamic. And uh, of course, I certainly think that many of the things we're going to pick up now uh, with um, Brian Kamanzi are in many ways very closely related uh, to uh, the issue that uh, Nsagana was raising. Uh, but you can't separate it to why we had the election on Monday last week. And of course, the deepening state of you know, uh, dysfunction that happens at that level. You can't, can't run away from it. Uh, and I think the other reality that we can't run away from is that when we speak about austerity in South Africa, austerity is not just at a national level with division of revenue where the allocations are happening. Austerity is also getting an allocation and not having the institutional machinery to be able to spend that money where it's needed the most. Uvenga rollovers. Huh? And you hear stories of uh, money being sent back, applications for rollovers, declining baseline allocations. So the austerity is not just at the level, you know, as people often say, of the budget office in the National Treasury, but even those who are charged with authorizing, planning, strategizing on how that money must be spent, who are sleeping at the wheel, uh, are also in many ways co-conspirators to the project of austerity. 27 minutes it is before 9 p.m. We do what we do every Monday, take a look at the latest in the lives of working people. And uh, yeah, one of the stories coming out last week uh, is that deal there between the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany and the EU uh, with South Africa to accelerate uh, the energy transition away from coal towards renewables and to support coal workers and affected communities. 8.5 billion U.S. dollars in a deal uh, we hear and uh, I guess uh, we know uh, quite little about some of the other detail. Brian Kamanzi joins me now on the line and uh, I want to talk to him about what we mean by just energy transition and of course uh, the political economy of that transition uh, and I guess how this uh, latest deal uh, squares up uh, to many of these issues. Brian, good evening and welcome. Good evening, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian, let's maybe start off, um, you know, when we talk about a just energy transition, Often the chatter is really focused, I guess, on the technologies shifting from one, you know, coal-fired stations right now to, I guess, wind, solar and all of that. Uh, but one would think that a uh, just energy transition is much wider in scope and conception than just shifting from one technology to the next. Yes, and I, I think in some ways some of these terms have become buzzwords. Mm. But I think it's important for us to step back and acknowledge that the impetus for the energy transition itself is rooted in a global and local acknowledgement of the harmful impacts of fossil fuel-based industrialization sure. that was prominent in the 20th century. Uh, you know, South Africa is somewhat of a latecomer to that and somewhat less industrialized than some other uh, nations in the global north, uh, but still having contributed uh, to the 12th largest emitter. But the just transition, which is a broader com uh, concept than the just energy transition, mm. emerged from the international labor movement, particularly in North America in the 1970s, it was an initiative to improve worker health and safety um, for workers working in polluting industries. And, and part of that gave rise to an idea of a super fund for workers, which mm. would help them in a transition to different industries, but also to offset um, some of the implications of more environmentally friendly pol um, policies across the economy. Mm. The just transition has been taken up, taken up all over the world and has had a number of successes and failures, commitments and missed opportunities. But the South African labor movement has been firm in asserting, I think one of the, the, the victories around the term in the mainstreaming of its use has come from the labor movement and has asserted that essentially, um, you know, workers and communities affected by um, 
the, the, our historical co-generation seat must be front and center in on the, any conversation about what comes next. And uh, the Just Transition is really about securing the future of livelihoods of workers and communities as we move towards a low-carbon uh, low economy. Um, it's, it's about social dialogue between workers, the unions, employers, governments, mm. and in consultation with communities and civil society. The yeah. Just Energy Transition is, a, is an aspect of that, and that's focusing on the implications of decarbonizing the electrical generation system, which itself has it has wide implications. But when we talk about just energy transition, it's more it's the subsection of the broader just transition mm, conversation, mm. and it's about the implications of decarbonizing electrical generation. Yeah, talk to me, Brian, about the distributional consequences, I guess, of um, this transition, because one would think that there are transitional costs from moving in the energy. If we just narrow it to the question of energy from moving from one approach to the other, and those would not be shouldered uh, proportionally or evenly across different subsets of a, you know, of a society. So, you know, unemployed uh, work seekers in Emalacheni would not experience that transition in the same way as the CEO of a coal company, nor would the workers Great. experience that in the same way uh, in Emalacheni you know, compared to, I guess, another place which might be attracting wind-related uh, investments in other parts of the country. Um, talk to me about why, I guess, it's important that we foreground working people uh, and the communities from which yes. they come from at the center of what we see as just. Thank you. Yes, it's an important question, and I think it's, it's uh, to demystify some of this, I think it's the, the language of transition is very familiar to modern South African history. Mm. We know what failed transition looks like, and we know what it looks like for workers to be left behind. Uh, we also even know within the coal value chain what it looks like um, when, when mines close down and what coal plants close down. Um, communities are completely left behind. Uh, companies that, close, that shift their operations or, or, or when mines are emptied out um, renege on their obligations to restore um, to their environmental obligations to, to deal with ecological degradation. And the jobs that had, had previously existed evaporate overnight and these, these become ghost towns. Um, tips estimate around 120,000 direct jobs lie in the coal valley uh, across the coal valley chain, um, and even more are connected to livelihoods in, in, in these towns and in, in, in surrounding areas. So the risk of the transition, um, you know, as you mentioned, some of the high yield areas of renewable energy may lie in other areas, particularly in the Northern Cape. Although we're seeing plants that are being planned in other parts of the country. But it's clear that careful planning and support for social protections and regional economic development and diversification are required. Uh, what's concerning, though, is that there, there appear to be areas where there's, in a sense, guaranteed implications of a transition, a closure, mm -hmm. a closure of a plant in one place, reopening of a plant in another. But speculative and unclear benefits and, and, and social protections for communities and workers, it's unclear whose responsibility it is. Um, who, who, where does the buck lie, and, and what does it tangibly mean? I think we're, there's there are a lot of uh, forums where that is being debated and discussed, but unfortunately, um, security is being offered in the wrong places to, to investors in new areas and new, new aspects of business. Mm -hmm. Brian, I want you to hold the line there for me for a second. We're going to take a quick spot break, but when we come back, uh, I want us to uh, unpack, I guess, this new 8.5 billion US dollar deal. And uh, I want us to talk about the political economy of this transition. Uh, there are interests that historically have been invested in, you know, the cheap labor, cheap energy and uh, minerals energy complex that we have in South Africa. And uh, I guess 
you know, some people have also suggested that this, if you just look at the technology that's being spoken about, platinum group metals, fuel cells, hydrogen, that uh, it comes as a minerals energy complex under a different guise. And I want, uh, I want you to help us take a look at that after this break. 19 minutes it is before 9 p.m. You tuned in to the Shop Stewards Corner here on uh, Metro FM Talk. This evening we uh, speak to Brian Kamanzi, energy policy researcher at the Institute for Economic Justice. Now, uh, Brian, uh, we've got a policy in South Africa, uh, and I think it came out in 2019, Integrated Resource Plan. Now, before we get, I guess, into the political economy of the transition, I'm interested. When South Africa goes and signs a deal on, you know, 8.5 billion US dollars of funding for this energy transition. Um, is that sort of in alignment with the integrated resource plan? Or is it something that I guess uh, would speed up maybe some of the signaling that's come there? So there's a sense of you have this number of thousand, you know, megawatts uh, from wind, from solar. And, you know, in a way, this is a sense right up to 2030 of what your energy mix is going to look like. Do funding arrangements like this um, in how they normally structured, I guess, have an impact in changing that or is it just about harmonizing it? Yes, I think, it's, I think to put it bluntly, we should expect a revision of the IRP 2019 to be proposed soon. First of all, the, the IRP, is, it, it is a document. It is a central planning document that is intended to be periodically revised. Sure. Um, so it won't, be, it won't be abnormal, but it's clear that with some of the alignment of the forces that you mentioned, the securing of the deal, but also the lo lobbying from other sectors to increase the component of particularly gas in the energy mix, which, which uh, across global markets has usually accompanied the, the increase of variable generation from wind and solar. Um, suggests that we may be, there may be further debates that need to be had, new modeling that needs to be done to incorporate um, the new prices, updated technologies, but also to reflect the realities of what the funding landscape looks like in the energy sector. Um, so I think we can expect a change in, in the IRP, but I do want to share some very quick figures mm. here that, that also demonstrate, I think, some of the, the outlier arguments that are being put forward in the media around an expectation that, for example, wind or solar could cover the majority of South Africa's power. Now, of course, we know the wind doesn't blow all the time, the sun doesn't shine all the time. If we just take the shortfall of the four gigawatts that has precipitated in some of our load shedding from the, the offlining of some of our coal generation fleet now, I had a look at ESCOM, the ESCOM's public figures. And just for our current installed capacity for wind and solar and CSP, which, which stands at about five gigawatts, it only reached that 4 gigawatt threshold about 0.5% of the time. It reached 3 gigawatts 24% of the time. Mm. So you, you can see that even with additional capacity, so if we, I, I, I had ran the assumption that if we had all the new proposed Red Window 5 projects and risk mitigation projects, if they magically materialized today, we still wouldn't be receiving 4 gigawatts um, as we needed 100% of the time for the last month. So what, what that suggests is that we can see the entry, there will be likely an entry of new complementary resources as we phase out coal or as we contend with the poor performance of our existing coal fleet, right? So, so it's, but it's also true to say that we, that we don't, I, I don't expect the immediate closure of coal. It's clear that in the South African environment, unless there are new alternatives that are put forward that are currently not on the table, mm. we will require some baseload power 
Sure. So there will be some coal. There will still remain a domestic market for coal, which will keep some coal mines and plants operational. The duration of that and uh, the duration of that transition, I think, is, is, is a big part of the debate. Mm. And that financing will influence the speed of the transition. Um, yeah. So I think that that's a key lever and that's, that's a key aspect we expect the new iteration of the IRP to talk about. Maybe just as a, as a last one as we wrap up, uh, Brian, uh, the political economy of uh, this transition, the scale, the scope, the pace, and the, f- and I guess, you know, uh, um, you know how, how deep uh, the shift happens. Uh, uh, many people have suggested will be determined by the contest, uh, I guess, between incumbent interests linked to coal in some shape or form, and many of those who stand to benefit uh, from a transitioning, uh, transition happening much faster than what maybe uh, uh, many of us would have thought. Talk to me about your reflections on that, and I guess the important role of collective forms of ownership, even of this new technology, which might be a departure from how, you know, historically we've thought of um, utility-scale type energy provision. Yes, so I think it's important to acknowledge in South Africa with the slowing economy uh, that the, the pie is shrinking, or the pie, the pie is stagnant, the pie is shrinking. So in order to increase generation capacity of some, uh, with some technologies, one has to decrease and decommission in other areas. So we will need to decommission coal in order to ramp up the other decarbonization options. So that brings some of these interests into competition, as you say. But there is also opportunities and potential for those interests to align, and those that alignment may not, probably most likely not in alignment with the interests of the working class. Mm. So I think what we, we, we should have concerns about the ways in which private generation, and private generation has expanded well beyond uh, renewable energy. It includes coal, it, it includes gas, and it, and it will likely become the new dominant form of, of generation, is that basic service delivery will become a site of profit-making, and there will be new new mechanisms for, for profit-making of the price of electricity through speculation that's introduced through auction bidding, as the move to unbundling and what's called the shift to energy markets change fundamentally the way tariffs and our, and our electricity tariffs are structured in this country. All of these are up for um, public comment at this stage through NOSA. So there are very concerning shifts that we have to understand as being linked. It's unfortunate that I, a lot of the details around that $8.5 billion are not public. I don't expect there to be. Uh, but it, it, in my opinion, so it, it appears tied to trends to advocate for the liberalization of the electricity sector in South Africa. Um, and you know, unions in South Africa and, 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 and in Europe itself have, all, have argued that one of the bulwarks against um, the, these trends is to advocate for public ownership. Mm. And the forms of collective ownership are ways to mitigate against this, this profit-seeking, which will drive up prices and which will also um, result in lower quality benefits. If we want higher quality benefits, it will be trade-offs. Who better to be in charge of than the people who will be facing the brunt of the impact, mm. rather than the, the private equity firms and foreign equipment manufacturers abroad, who will be unlikely to be, you know, some of the, the, the nations that are funding this $8.5 billion are some who have advanced value cha- sections of the value chains in wind manufacturing. So if they're supporting that, it's unlikely that they're going to hand over the keys to the castle to ensure that their monopoly no longer monopolizes wind, the, the, the wind value chain in South Africa. So we, we need an aggressive industrial policy. We need public ownership. We need to leverage the tools that we have available. We're not in a strong position, uh, but these are some of the key levers we have. 
um, to determine that we, we yield high-quality benefits from, from the procurement options for, we have available to us for infrastructure um, so that we can build a different type of industrialization path. Because if we leave things in the same hands of the people who got us here, we should expect the same outcomes, mm. uh, inequality and benefits for the few. Yeah. Brian? We're going to have to leave it here, but a uh, real pleasure having had you on the show and uh, thank you very much for taking time out to speak to us. Thank you. Brian Kamanzi is the Energy Policy Researcher at the Institute for Economic Justice joining us on this Monday for our Shop Stewards Corner.